Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Hey, we're in Jeremiah chapter 37 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 37. 37 and 38, actually. But uh, don't worry, we're not going to read every verse of both chapters. We'll be here for a while. But yeah, turn to Jeremiah 37. You know, we're doing this series called The Person God Uses. Last week in part three, we talked about overcoming discouragement. This week we're going to talk about persevering in obedience. Jeremiah 37. Hey, sports fans, let me ask you this. Did you know that Tom Brady has played in 10 Super Bowls, winning six with the Patriots, one with the Buccaneers? Yeah, you probably knew that. I mean, if you follow professional sports. But did you know that Brady is also the second most sacked quarterback in the history of the NFL. He has been sacked over the course of his career 543 times, tackled for a loss. Maybe you knew this, Walter Payton played 13 years as a running back for the Chicago Bears. And during his career, he rushed for 16,726 yards. That's a little more than nine miles. And that's a record that he held for a long, long time until Emmett Smith finally broke that. But what makes that particular achievement even more impressive is that he said it with someone knocking him down an average of 4.6 yards per carry. 4.6 yards, knock him down. 4.6 yards, knock him down. That's a lot of knockdowns. But you know what? Jeremiah also knew a little bit about getting knocked down. In fact, here's the first thing I want you to notice uh, from the text this morning. In Jeremiah, we see a man who persevered. And he gives us a great example of perseverance here. Chapters 37 and 38, we find that he'd been consulted by King Zedekiah and at various times placed under house arrest. Uh, As we're going to find out, he was imprisoned in a cistern and eventually set free, all because of varied responses to the word of the Lord in his generation. And the response to the word, we're going to revisit that thought here after we read some of the text. Let's read those first few verses together, though. Jeremiah 37, let's read verses 11 through 17. Verse 11 says, When the Chaldean army withdrew from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to claim his portion there among the people. But when he was at the Benjamin gate, an officer of the guard was there whose name was Iriah, son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah. And he apprehended the prophet Jeremiah saying, you are defecting to the Chaldeans. That's a lie, Jeremiah replied. I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. Uh, By the way, just historical note. When you see Chaldeans in the scripture, that's a specific people group that lived in southern Babylon, 
which actually today would be southern Iraq, but it's also a term that's, that's more or less used synonymously, synonymously with Babylonians. So just think Babylonians when you see uh, Chaldeans. All right, so verse 14. Iriah would not listen to him, but apprehended Jeremiah and took him to the officials. The officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him and placed him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for it had been made into a prison. So Jeremiah went into his cell in the dungeon and stayed there many days. And King Zedekiah later sent for him and received him, and in his house privately asked him, Is there a word from the Lord? There is, Jeremiah responded. He continued, You will be handed over to the king of Babylon. And that brings us really to the big idea, the, the theme that runs through these two passages. And that's this, and it's very simple, but it's the fact that God's Word evokes different responses in different people. And you see some interesting responses to the Word of the Lord here in these passages. In Jeremiah's case, those responses included curiosity, hostility and rejection, ridicule, and, you know, in some very rare occasions, a positive reception. But despite the negative responses, he persisted. He persevered. Jeremiah had faithfully proclaimed the message from God, that message of coming destruction, for 40 years. 40 years he stayed at it. Now, all of his warnings and predictions were coming true. You know, and Babylon was, was laying siege to Jerusalem. The fall of the city was imminent. And you would think after proclaiming that message for 40 years and the people seeing it fulfilled before their very eyes that, hey, maybe they might actually start to believe Jeremiah. No. In fact, Jeremiah's message only hardened their hearts. They kept taking their pot shots at him, knocking him down, beating him, leaving him for dead. But Jeremiah just kept getting back up. He prevailed, despite all the suffering, to be faithful to God's orders. And Jeremiah persevered in obedience. But I want you to note all the stuff that, that happened on that that road of obedience, all the things that he had to endure uh, to remain faithful to the call. Okay, first thing, Jeremiah was arrested for defecting to the enemy. There in verses uh, 11 through 17 that we just read, we find him leaving Jerusalem uh, during this uh, temporary withdrawal of the Babylonian forces. Verse 12 says, he was going to the land of Benjamin to claim his portion there among the people. Meaning of that statement is not entirely clear. It probably refers back to uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 15. Uh, there was a, a plot of land, a, a field that he had purchased there. But whatever the case, you know, this guard sees him leaving. He arrests him, and he charges him as a traitor who's defecting to the enemy. And the accusation angered Jeremiah. He'd been loyal to his country. He had stood strong. He had voiced truth. He had longed for his countrymen to return to God, and yet they refused because they preferred, preferred the, the, the darkness over the light. So they brought him to the city officials where they beat him. They imprisoned him. 
he stayed there for several days. And, and King Zedekiah sent for him to see if he had a word. And this, this, at this point, you know, you, he's, you know he's got to be worn down. And this emaciated servant of God confronts this wimpy, waffling king. Verse 17, yeah, I got a message. You will be handed over to the king of Babylon. Now, considering his circumstances, you know, it would have been easy for Jeremiah to give up, to give in, to compromise, to just stay down. Jeremiah couldn't do that. He got up. He boldly proclaimed the truth, even after being accused of defecting to the enemy. But notice what else happened to Jeremiah in this passage. Not only was he accused of defecting, he was accused of demoralizing the army. So let's read in chapter 38. Let's read verses 4 through 6 together there. It says, The officials then said to the king, This man ought to die because he is weakening the morale of the warriors who remain in this city and of all the people by speaking to them this way. This man is not pursuing the welfare of his people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, here he is. He's in your hands since the king can't do anything against you. So they took Jeremiah, dropped him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the guard's courtyard, lowering Jeremiah with ropes. There was no water in the system, cistern, only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. So here in this part of uh, chapter 38, we see this accusation of demoralizing the army. We see that played out here. You know, and, and I think on some level I can understand that accusation. After all, Jeremiah had been for 40 years proclaiming defeat, destruction, <laughs> devastation. You know, it's not exactly the words of a pep talk before a big game, you know. His words had discouraged the soldiers who were left to defend the city. And so these officials wanted to kill Jeremiah. Now the king, who was, you know, weak and cowardly, he refused to do anything to Jeremiah. But verse 6 of chapter 38 says that they dropped him into this cistern with ropes and just let him sink in the mud. So uh, I think it's safe to say Jeremiah's message was not popular. <laughs> Neither was he. See, the people had been wanting a sermon of mercy, not a sermon of justice. They wanted a God who would just kind of, you know, wink at their sin, let it slide, not a God who would actually deal with their sin. But Jeremiah, he persisted. He spoke the truth. And you know what? Sometimes the truth can be painful both to deliver and to receive. And it causes some people to want to pounce on the truth bearer. It angered these officials so much that they wanted to put Jeremiah to death. But the king refused to kill Jeremiah, so the officials did the next best thing, lowered him to, into this cistern, yet another imprisonment, another knockdown, now, cisterns in that day, they were actually dug out of rock. They had a very small opening at the top, and they kind of spread out at the bottom, you know, making kind of a pear shape. And they were used to collect precious water during the rainy season 
water that would be used during the dry season. An escape from a cistern, I mean, that's virtually impossible. And here was Jeremiah sinking into the mud. I mean, this was a slow, yucky, terrible way to die, especially for someone who'd been so faithful to proclaim the truth, had been obedient in speaking God's word. So we've seen a couple things that have happened to Jeremiah already. We've seen that he was falsely arrested for defecting to the enemy. We see that he was accused for demoralizing the army. But now we find a third thing. He was asked to deliver a message to the king. Let's read uh, these verses in uh, verses 14 through 18 in chapter 38. Verse 14 says, King Zedekiah sent for the prophet Jeremiah and received him at the third entrance of the Lord's temple. The king said to Jeremiah, I'm going to ask you something. Don't hide anything from me. Jeremiah replied to Zedekiah, If I tell you, you'll kill me, won't you? Besides, if I give you advice, you won't listen to me anyway. King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in private, As the Lord lives, who has given us this life, I will not kill you or hand you over to these men who intend to take your life. Jeremiah therefore said to Zedekiah, This is what the Lord, the God of armies, the God of Israel, says. If indeed you surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then you will live. This city will not be burned, and you and your household will survive. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city will be handed over to the Chaldeans. They will burn it. And you yourself will not escape from them. Uh, spoiler alert, by the way. Um, king Zedekiah didn't meet with a particularly pleasant ending. But you know what? If you want to hear how things worked out for him, go to 2 Kings chapter 25, and you can get... You know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. But moving on, what had happened in between these two passages is this, there was this guy named Ebed-Melech. He was a, a foreign official from Ethiopia. And he heard what had happened to Jeremiah, and so he petitions the king for help. And so men were sent to pull Jeremiah out of the cistern. And, and here in these verses we just read, we find that after Jeremiah's rescue, the king sends for him. And he wants to hear from the prophet again. In verse 14, the king asked Jeremiah to be honest, to not withhold any information. Don't hide anything from me, he says. You know, basically what he's saying is, hey, don't pull any punches. Give it to me straight. But you see, Zedekiah was desperately hoping that Jeremiah's prophecy would be more favorable, you know, that Jerusalem would be spared. Jeremiah replies in verse 15, If I tell you, you'll kill me, won't you? Besides, if I give you advice, you won't listen to me anyway. But the king promised his protection. And so Jeremiah tells the king that if he surrendered to the Babylonian king, he, the city, his family, you know, they'd all be spared. But if he didn't surrender, the city's going to be burned and they're all going to perish. So Jeremiah hid nothing from the king. Why? Why would he do that? Because he, I mean, he knew it wasn't pleasant news. Well, the answer is pretty simple. You know, because he ran his race with integrity. He carried the ball without fumbling. 
And look what he got in return. He got beatings, imprisonment, uh, a polluted cistern, death threats. He got knocked down again and again and again. Because the fact is, the truth can cost us. It can hurt. So here's Jeremiah. He's been repeatedly shunned, mocked, ridiculed, abused, and he gives us a wonderful example of persevering in obedience. And you know what? This actually foreshadowed uh, the obedience of Christ in the face of the worst physical punishment that mankind could conceive in that day, crucifixion. So the standard of perseverance has already been set for us. But how do we pull it off? How can we ever hope to persevere in obedience? You know, especially in troubling circumstances. Well, you know, we talked about the man who persevered. Let's talk about the means to persevere. All right? Four simple things. The first is to stand by your convictions. Throughout Jeremiah's ordeal, he stood by his convictions, speaking the truth of God's will. And true to his promise, all the way back in chapter 1, God made Jeremiah a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls. He was a man of unfaltering conviction, a man for, for whom God's words, as we saw last week in chapter 20, uh, were just like a fire in his bones that desperately needed to get out. That was in chapter 20, verse 9. Now, here's the thing about a person with convictions. See, a person with convictions, they know what they believe. They know where they're going. They know why they're going there. But you know, because God created all of us with free will, convictions are not something that are going to be forced on an individual. Their beliefs and actions of our own choosing. But for a Christian, you know, they're the truth, the mission, the calling that's given by God. Calling, you know, a calling that's not altered by time or circumstances or, or people or opinions. There's a guy named Francis Kelly. He's actually a, a Catholic theologian, but he once wrote, convictions are the mainsprings of action. The driving powers of life, what a man lives, are his convictions. Or as my dear old departed dad used to say time and again, what you do is what you really believe. Everything else is just religious talk. There's a public library in Savannah, Missouri, decided to open on Sunday. As a result, Connie Rim, a librarian for 12 years, found herself squeezed between honoring the Lord's Day and keeping a job that she considered to be a gift from God. Well, she chose to worship on Sunday, and subsequently the library terminated her employment. Rim files a lawsuit against the library, claiming religious discrimination. And when it became clear that she actually had a really strong case, the library tried to reach a financial settlement with her out of court. But, you know, for Connie, it, it really wasn't about the money. She just wanted our, her job back. And so three years after the initial termination, 
a Missouri jury ordered the library to reinstate Connie Rim to her job, and it also awarded her $53,712 in damages and, and compensation for lost wages. Rim said, a middle American, mild-mannered, small-town library person, I attribute to the Lord a great sense of humor for having picked me for this test. And then she goes on to say, what price is my religious freedom? What is it worth? It's not a matter of displaying the Ten Commandments. It's being able to live the Ten Commandments. And that's what my employer was asking me not to do. Connie Rem is a wonderful example of someone who stood by their convictions. You know, folks, as Christians, each and every day is going to challenge our convictions. But the person who perseveres in obedience lives by those convictions each and every day. So, if you want to persevere in obedience, all right, first thing, you stand by your convictions. Now, here's the second thing. You make the right choices. People who have persevered are people who chose not to lay there when they got knocked down. They got up. See, the choices we made yesterday, they affect our today. The choices we make today affect our tomorrow. And obedience is always a choice. You know, nobody forces you to obey God his word, his will. I mean, it, it boils down to a choice that you make each day. You know, a choice to be faithful or not. You know, a choice to be loving or not. To be willing or not. You know, this series is called The Person God Uses. Do you know what the number one quality God looks for in a servant? It's willingness. That's a choice we make every day. Are we willing to obey God? So the types of choices that affect our, our, our ability to, to persevere in obedience, really those are the ones that, you know, re, regard honesty, integrity, you know, sincerity. And it's the husband who remains faithful to his wife, the athlete who refuses to use uh, performance-enhancing drugs. You know, it's the student who cracks the book instead of having somebody write a term paper for them. It's the salesman who doesn't pad his expense account because he's, he's needing to defray some other unexpected cost. 20 years ago, Mark Cuban, who's quite the character, uh, you know, he's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, uh, he offered a radio uh, sports talk host, a guy named David Kaplan, $50,000 if he would legally change his name to Dallas Maverick. <laughs> well, Kaplan declined. So Cuban sweetens the deal. He says, okay, 100000 and I'll also donate $100,000 to your favorite charity. And Kaplan was just bombarded with emails from all of his listeners saying, dude, you're a fool if you don't take the money. But he held firm, saying, my name is my birthright. I'd like to preserve my integrity and credibility. But you know what? The name Christian, it's the birthright of every follower 
of Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to live each and every day in a way that brings honor to that name. Okay, so if you want to pers uh, persevere in obedience, you know, you, you, you got to stand by your convictions. Got to make the right choices. Here's the third thing. You maintain personal character. Jeremiah maintained his character. He was standing on the truth of God's Word in the midst of, of people elsewhere, you know, preaching a, a radically different message, you know, kind of a, a feel-good message, telling the people of Judah, hey, everything's going to work out. You know, it's cool. But his character remained intact. And I think one of the most pressing needs we have in our world today is more Christ-like character. And unfortunately, that's a trait that it's in short supply in this world today, and it's getting shorter every day. If you'll indulge me, though, I, I want to do a quick word study of that word character. Now, if you look it up in the English dictionary, then, you know, the English word, uh, it refers to a, a person's distinctive qualities. It's used a little bit differently in the Greek New Testament, however. The Greek word for character, charakter, it comes from a root word, karaso, which means to cut into or to engrave. In, in some contexts, it actually means to, to stamp or impress, you know, like on a coin. You know, a process in which all of the features of the, the original image, you know, that they're impressed and stamped on, on like a coin or whatever, you know, and, and that image that's created corresponds with the instrument that's producing that image. Uh, that may be clear as mud. So let me give you a biblical example of what I'm, I'm trying to get at. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son, meaning Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, character, of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So for a Christian... Who is engraving their image, their character upon us? Well, if we're walking in obedience to God's will, it's His Holy Spirit who's conforming us into representations, into images of Christ. So character is engraved in us. It's impressed upon us as we continually make God-honoring choices. Choices that are going to make us different from the rest of the world. So if you want to persevere in obedience, you stand by your convictions, you make the right choices, you maintain personal character, and here's the fourth one. You refuse to compromise. Now granted, there are a lot of situations in life where compromise is welcome and necessary, uh, not the least of which is marriage. I mean, let's be honest. If you've got two spouses that are unwilling to compromise, whew, man, those people are going to be headed toward divorce court 90 miles per hour. But when it comes to the truth, we shouldn't compromise. You know, as, as a pastor, I can't compromise with the truth. I mean, I, I can't preach these wishy-washy, you know, feel-good messages designed to, to tickle your ears, you know, and, and to help you maximize your success, you know, or live at your full potential. 
I'm charged with preaching the truth of God, the truth of His Word. And we should never, none of us should ever compromise that truth. Now you look at Jeremiah. You know, he didn't compromise with this knucklehead Irial, the sentry who arrested him and charged him with desertion. He did not compromise with the officials who, who wanted Jeremiah to soften his message to one of peace and prosperity. You know, kind of like a Judean Joel Osteen. He didn't compromise the truth with King Zedekiah. Zedekiah who longed for Jeremiah to agree with Zedekiah's prophets for hire. You know, the ones who were saying, hey, it's cool. It's copacetic, you know. Judah's going to prevail. Here's a great example of not compromising the truth. In the 17th century, after England's brief flirtation with being a republic instead of a monarchy, um, the monarchy is restored, and the Anglican Church is designated as the official state religion. And so it became illegal to conduct church services that did not conform to Church of England guidelines. And unlicensed individuals were forbidden from preaching at religious gatherings. Well, during this time, a guy named John Bunyan, he becomes part of a separatist movement, a, a movement that we now know as the Puritans. In fact, a little uh, church history note, out of that Puritan movement, those separatist movement, actually, the Baptist church was birthed. So there you go. Uh, jot that down. There will not be a test later, by the way. But uh, take it for what it's worth. And so Bunyan is arrested for preaching without a license. And the judge offers a compromise. He promises Bunyan immediate release if he would pledge not to ever preach again. And Bunyan replies, if you release me today, I shall preach tomorrow. And three times in his life, Bunyan was arrested, convicted, jailed for preaching without a license. And in the end, he spent over 12 years in prison. At any time, he could have secured his release by simply saying, all right, I will not preach anymore. But Bunyan knew God's calling on his life. And so he adamantly refused to compromise his convictions. But there were some good things that came out of that experience for John Bunyan. Those prison years were not wasted because it was during that time when he wrote a number of his books. Uh, the one you probably recognize most immediately is Pilgrim's Progress. And it's interesting that the immediate success of Pilgrim's Progress and its ongoing popularity has made it a Christian classic. In fact, for roughly 330 years, it was the second most read book in English literature next to the Bible. See, for a Christ follower, refusing to compromise the truth, yeah, that can be costly. Even today, Christians are being martyred for their faith by Muslim jihadists. And in nations that are hostile to Christianity, Christians languish in prison because they will not compromise their faith, won't give in to government demands. Those demands, of course, you know, would include a, a formal statement from the prisoner, 
renouncing Christianity, yet we have fellow believers in Christ around the globe who would rather suffer indefinitely for the cause of Christ than to deny Him. And again, obviously, you know, compromise isn't always bad. Sometimes it's, 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 it's a welcome thing. But when it comes to issues of faith, we're expected to stand firmly on the truth of God's Word. All right? And that, that really that kind of brings us full circle to the, the theme of these passages. The big idea is that God's Word, it evokes different responses from different people. And you know what? Sometimes that truth is going to be met with bitterness. Sometimes it's going to be met with rejection, even anger. But sometimes the response is going to be favorable. But the key for you and I is simply to persevere. All right, so let me ask you then. In the end, after you've been knocked down time and time again, what are you going to do? And after you've run your race, you know, what, what's going to be the legacy that you leave behind? You know, what's going to be the, the, the epitaph on your grave marker? That you stayed the course? Believers, today I want to invite you to just take some spiritual inventory. Take inventory of your life. Are you standing by your convictions? Are you making the right choices? Are you maintaining personal character? Are, are you refusing to compromise the truth? And if not, why? And what course corrections do you need to make in order to persevere in obedience? Now, if you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christ follower, I want you to consider this. In some ways, Jeremiah's story actually foreshadows Jesus' story and how his message was shunned. Jesus was a prophet too. And though he was popular at first, uh, public opinion began to turn against him, uh, which is, you know, unfathomable to me because he proclaimed a message of grace of justice, and yet he wasn't accepted by all. Even the folks in his hometown dishonored him. Jesus encountered death threats. He was misunderstood. He was called names. He was knocked down again and again and again on his way to the cross. But do you know why Jesus persevered in obedience to his Father's plan? You get a hint in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame. You're thinking, did he read that right? What? Joy? Do you know what that joy was? It's you. Seeing you made right with God, knowing that the sin debt has been paid. That's the joy that drove Christ to be obedient, even unto death, as it says in Philippians 2. So let me ask, if you're not a Christ follower, you're here today, you're struggling, are you desperate to be accepted by God? Are, are you looking for a higher standard 
you know, than the, 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 the quicksand philosophies of the world. But you know what? Faith in Jesus can provide you a much better way to live, eternally live. Now, understand this. You know, we Christians, we do not live a perfect life. You know, in fact, there's the old saying, if you ever find a perfect church, yeah, don't go there because you'll ruin it. <laughs> of course, there is no perfect church because we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. We all rebel against God at times. We don't live a perfect life, but we're saved by the one who did. Bible says that a price had to be paid for our sin, but it could only be done with a perfect sacrifice, which is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.31 that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on your sin, my sin, the sin of the whole world so that we could be made right with God. You see, salvation and eternal life in Jesus they are the greatest gift that humankind has ever been offered. But because God created you with free will, you get to make the choice. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.